Welcome to Season 4 of the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. I'm Karen Hay and this season we're delighted to bring you the voices of authors from the deep south of New Zealand, like today's episode with Roxborough author Carl Newburn. Carl Mewburn is one of New Zealand's most prolific and eclectic writers. Working full-time as a writer for over 20 years, she's published over 40 titles, including award-winning picture books and two junior fiction series. She also has a new memoir due out this year. In our last episode, Naomi Arnold and Kyle discussed Kyle's path to this remarkable career. In this episode, they focus on the issues writers face, both on and off the page, beginning with gender politics in children's literature. There's a lot of quest- lot of um, discussion recently about publishing and girls versus boys and you know gender diversity and and I feel you know I'm totally supportive of writing stories with girl characters, but there is the reality that exists is that boys struggle to read something which is going to be pointed out as a girl book even if it's not, you know, there's no reason and there's no logical reason, but our social, and, I, and I've argued before and been argued against, is that it's not, as a writer, you, you're working from within a con- social context and you can't change the context overnight. You can, so there's no point just constantly just writing these saying, well, it shouldn't be like that, but it is like that. And as a writer who's trying to earn a living, you do have to be aware of the context in which you're writing, which means that you can't just go, I'm going to put every character is going to be transgender now because I want to promote, of course I want to promote diversity and inclusion and gender diversity especially. Of course, I support it completely. It would be lovely if it was, but it's, we're not there yet. And you, you nudge it. My task is to nudge it and be part of the move and push towards. But I can't just shoot myself in the foot and you know sacrifice my career on the basis of wanting to be all noble yeah I mean it's not just giving it to kids it's librarians teachers parents grandparents mm-hmm. you know there's this there's such a barrier between children and the work isn't there in terms of getting totally. into them yeah it'd be good if you could have just to put a story out there and kids say yes I like that and then it goes off and but yeah it's I, I on the other hand I also don't like it when publishers say I oh, I read your story to um, one of our editors took it home to their their daughter and read and oh she had a bit of problem with it you think yeah but that's just one kid you know you're supposed to it's more to that and i i feel like it's no point i'm i'm and the thing is i'm not a children's writer as such i don't write for children i write for specific children who need i like the pop hooper series that i i'm writing what children need <laughs> certain children need and i'm trying to give them something which is just going to touch certain children and be these moments when they can really relate to it. I'm trying to relate to specific children. I'm not trying to have a generic, bland thing which everyone goes, ha ha, that's funny, yes, jokes are funny. I'm not writing jokes, I'm writing, trying to write something which is meaningful for a specific type of child. Trying to have it as broad as possible, of course, so I can make some money out of this business, but I'm not, I don't see myself as writing trying to write 
a bestseller. I don't set out to write a bestseller by ticking boxes and saying this is needs to have this. Good, 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 good. What are some of the different children you've had in mind throughout the different books you've written? Um, it's all me. <laughs> it's one, and it's one. It's well, I've gone to a lot of schools now as well, and even when I'm doing my talk, I try to make it entertaining. And there's lots of jokes, there's lots of stories, there's lots of I move a lot because I get nervous if I don't move a lot. <laughs> and I'm and in there there's lots of information and stuff. And as you read, there's lots of kids laughing. I get a lot of laugh in my school visits. And but in amongst it you see this handful of kids. You see this the, the little light in their behind their eyes and you can see that they're getting more out of this than the others. The others are laughing, but then I'm hoping that it's just ticking this thing saying, you know, I try to give the message that you can do what you want to do. You can be who you want to be. You have to just, of course it's hard work and there's no easy way. And that's my sort of message. I sort of, not in a, I disguise it with so much other stuff. There's so many jokes and so many stories and so much stuff, but deep down there's that thing about here I am, I am who I am. I've got here by doing this. I got told you can't. You can't be a writer. You can't do this. You can't build your own house. You can't be be who I am. So I've got all this stuff, but here I am. Take it what you will. Most people go, oh yeah, that's quite a good story. And then a week later it'll be like, oh yeah, that person came to the school, yeah, I forget, yeah, who was it again? Yeah, I remember, yeah, oh, yeah. And it, but it was this handful of kids, you see their little lies lighting up, and it's always that moment when you're scanning the crowd and you see this little glimmer, and you think, good. Got one. Got one. That's satisfying. Mm, totally. Mm. That's what you, that's all I do it for, really. It's, um, I like the laughs, and I like to get the crowd wound up, and I like to get get big bunches of kids wound up and then I say goodbye I'm leaving you to your teacher now <laughs> and I also push I like push boundaries and because I like all my writing as well I do I just take it on further in person and it's I basically I set up the boundary and say I know this is where you stop and you're a child you must stop here otherwise you'll be in trouble but here I am, I'm an adult, and I'm just going to go a little bit further and see how long I can take this until somebody starts getting a bit awkward and uncomfortable. And all the kids are going, and often I say and do stuff, and the kids' first reaction is to just flip their heads all in mass, whip around to the teacher looking, did you hear that? How come, how come the person's not getting in trouble for this mess? And I'm thinking, ha-ha, because <laughs> I'm an adult. I'm allowed to do this. <laughs> well, you, if you started out, you know, wanting to write for adults, and then somewhere along the way, you discovered that this was a great joy—is actually reading to children. And mm-hmm. yeah, how, how did that happen? It just—it just evolved. It just—I don't know. That's—I don't know why uh, no one it ever occurred to me to write for children. I don't because I've always got along with children. Kids are either going to laugh or cry. I have no bland reaction. Kids either, within seconds of me saying something or doing something, they're either cracking up laughing and going along with it. And they're the ones I wanted. That's the kids I like. And the kids, other kids will look at me and start crying because <laughs> of what I've said is somehow touch something they don't want to be touched. And so I had that divide a bit. 
and but the kids that I get along with, I really just really, and I push them to, you know, I don't don't take second second rate ideas. They say it's something which is just half banal and half hearted. I just go, that's rubbish. Sorry, this is terrible. You can do better than that. Seriously, and just push them to to, and they do it and enjoy it and have this, and opening up the whole thing, the world of possibilities, saying. You know, come on, push yourself because this you see, you know, but you better stuff happening in your head than that. Go, come up with it, and, and I will appreciate it, and I will support it, and I will, I will push you to push even higher. That's my my thing. So, and I try to take that with kids and adults. So, the things with adults. I think the divide between adult writers and children's writers is there's that sort of tension that people think children's writing is easy. And my view over the years has become that actually writing for children is easy. Technically, there's no complex structural things you have to do. You don't have to, you know, not like the luminaries where they say, you know, the structure of the whole thing is so complex and mathematical. You don't have to do any of that because you're not trying to impress adults. But what what's missed out is that to really write well for children and to really get into them and to write something which touches them deeply is a gift which you have or you haven't. You can learn how to write for adults because you're an adult. You can learn to analyse your own writing and realise what, what is working what isn't. With children's writing, you only have instinct and intuition. You can't write a story and think... I've nailed it with any certainty because it then goes out and it will either be hitting, hitting a head, nail on the head or not. And I've got stories which have been popular and other stories which I think, oh, well, that missed the mark. And then I get emails or letters from kids going, you know, that is my favourite story. And that's the story I really... I even go to high schools now and it's like, oh, I, grew, I loved that story when I was growing up. That's really sort of an important story for them. So I'm thinking, and that having that, being able to write a story which has resonance and lingers in the mind, is 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 I feel like um um, it's a gift I've been given, which I didn't think about because I didn't, I wanted to impress adults. I wanted to be important. I wanted to be, you know. And the thing is, adult <laughs> adult readers are impressed by certain type of people who you are. You know, you'll appear in a magazine and you've got the right kind of dog and everyone goes, oh, wow, I have to buy that book. I love those dogs. <laughs> Someone says something important, they're all philosophical and smokes a pipe and has leather arm things on it and it's like, wow, this is an important person. I should listen to this person because they're very important. And they're using very big words I don't understand. So I, I'm, they're using French phrases and foreign language and some Latin. Gosh. This is an clever person. I'm very impressed by this person. I don't know what the story is, but I'm going to buy all the books and make sure make add it to my library. You did um, receive the 2011 Children's Writer Residence, mm-hmm. which was just after you won for Huku, wasn't yep, it? Yeah, a year later. Yep. What What was that like to, to have that recognition from the establishment? You know, establishment literary community. It's a, a residency is a big deal. The thing is, it's a children's writer in residence, which is not such a big deal. <laughs> Sounds good. I know it is. It's great. It's uh, it's. It, but it's the only one. 
so and basically if you're a writer of any note you will likely get it and it's, it's great I'm not trying to put it down at all it's just the reality is that a children's writing is is a, a poor cousin not just in New Zealand but everywhere it's it's seen as you know Salman Rushdie wrote a children's book I can write a children's book anyone can write children's books and yes they can but very few established writers have written children's books which have lasted and, and done, done the work that children's books need to do especially picture books picture books are even another genre off the off the curve because it's not even a story really it's not as soon as you see it as the same all junior fiction and stuff you can see from the same perspective as you do a normal adult novel and young adult novel even more so you can write you know the older the age of the re reader the the more you can write like you do normally for an adult book whereas picture books are a completely different thing and you can write a story and get it illustrated and it's a picture book more or less but I don't think that it's a combination of of poetry and philosophy and but also in a way which is has this linguistic hooks and there's all this stuff happening which is it's a it's a, it's a talent <laughs> well maybe I'm just saying that because I, I'm, I think I'm good at them <laughs> what was that residency like what did you what work did you do it was full time isn't it? yeah the, the, th the things with residencies it's all they're they're great because it offers people time to write but most people have uh, got jobs and I've always been a full-time writer. So for me, it was more about the money. <laughs> I just continued as I was, but I just happened to be in Dunedin and getting paid, which was astronomically wonderful to be you know, free to not even worry about money for a, for a year. Because each year, you know, you're just relying on selling and you're relying on the public lending right is my main income at the moment. So... So it's it wonderful, it's great, and the people are supportive, and it's all, it's good acknowledgement, it is, you know, it's, um, but yeah, it's, I, I'm, I don't know, I'm not, I don't take these things too seriously, even, even awards, you think, it's, it's a bunch of people who have their own perspective, get a bunch of books, which happen to be produced that year, and they have to weigh them all up against each other, and they give out a prize depending on, and often it's dict It's also, you know, who who you are, where you are in your career, what you've done before, what's in at the moment, what what people think are missing. You know, each judging report comes out, and it's like, you know, we're so in in the past. I've been so disappointed that there haven't been many books about blah blah, or about there haven't been many adventure stories and this is a good old-fashioned adventure and it wins an award because that's the judges that year thought there was a gap, has been a gap, or hasn't been taken seriously, this kind of novel. So that year they think, well, this one is and we're going to take it seriously because we believe this hasn't been taken. So there's a very zeitgeisty element. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And that's all fine. That's how it works. And it's, it's all good. I love getting awards. <laughs> I... I bathe in the spotlight and it's all wonderful and I get some money and it's all it boosts your little sales for a while and potentially and it's all wonderful nothing nothing to be said against awards but in the end you for your own sanity as well you've got to take it like with a grain of salt because what are you going to do when you miss out which is never happens and often you think I've written a better book than last time 
and I've missed out. So what am I going to do about that? Either I assume that, okay, my book is actually bad and I don't know what I'm talking about. And then you read the one that has won the award and you think, well, okay. So I'm, am I going to believe this is a better book or am I going to believe that the judges have a different view on things than I do? And so I'd rather believe the judges have a different view. So you move on and think, well, next year, next year. During this time you were chairing the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand mm-hmm. Society of Authors. Okay, so mm-hmm. what made you take on that political role locally? <laughs> uh, it was two things. One was because I believe in the organisation and the only part of my research early on that I didn't get was that actually you can join before being published. I assumed I had to wait till I was published. So as soon as I got published, I went, yeah, and I joined. And they said, well, you could have been a member all along. You can be, and it probably would have been helpful. I could have applied for assessments or something, but I didn't read the fine print. I thought Society of Authors meant you had to be a published author. But yeah, I believe in what they do. And so in Southland Otago, it came up that, you know, like most organisations, they end up relying on a small number of people to do stuff. And to get involved is a big thing. And not many people have the time or the willingness to get involved. And understandably, because things go on without you. So it's easy to say, well, it's not my problem. I enjoy what they do, I pay my money and they're doing a good job. But at some point it came up that the people who had done it um, didn't want to do it and there wasn't any immediate step up from there. Those people were not. And at the same time, New Zealand was at the um, Frankfurt Book Fair. I'd been the spokesperson for children's writers who were largely ignored even though the theme of the book fair that year was um, writing for inspire young minds or something and um, of course it was said it wasn't the thing but but my wife is German and she lives in the Frankfurt area and our friends in Frankfurt sent us clippings from the Frankfurt book fair because it's taken very seriously in Frankfurt the Frankfurt um, Allgemeine um, newspaper takes a whole has a whole section devoted to book fair when it's on they have reporters who are book fair, book reporters. They broadcast live from the book fair, TV stations and radio stations. So very few children's writers got to go to the Frankfurt Book Fair. So I was the spokesperson with a big petition of 100 and something New Zealand children's writers saying it's not good enough. And um, nothing happened, of course. And so that was um, my first political act in the, in the literary world. And... I think I just annoyed people, really. <laughs> Probably. You, you made a very good point, though, in the lead-up to all that, about how there was 100 performers going and 60 authors, mm-hmm. and it was very much brand New Zealand, um, not really focused on the writers, whereas the German papers, which New Ze- no other New Zealander would really have noticed, probably, uh, were saying, well, we're all the mm-hmm. writers. Uh, that did seem to disappear. Uh, by the time they'd arranged the contingent, it was maybe too late to do anything about it. But um, it did seem very much a tourism exercise as opposed mm-hmm. to uh, that was that was quite lost yeah I mean it was I mean it's in a way it's understandable because it was for a start it was short term it was um, quickly done because normally it takes years to do these things they New Zealand jumped in and said we can do it in a year so that's normally takes sort of three or four years for them to organise and the story is that basically Australia and New Zealand were asked to do a joint one and Australia went can't do in that time and New Zealand said yeah we can 
So, and, and New Zealand's very small, so money is like the more you spread it amongst various organisations. So you can understand it to a degree, but I, I think you know, I've talked to other people involved in organisations who were linked to Germany and were offered to help and basically told, no, no, we don't need that help because we know what we're doing. And I think the, they did misjudge the German attitude towards literature because it is in German literature is is the thing it's a big it's a massively important part of the culture and their writers are really important in the cultural discussion and so I think it sort of somehow undervalued that and thought we could do a New Zealand roadshow and it'll be all great and everyone go great love it love Kiwis yeah an opportunity to be on the stage and as New Zealand does you know go anywhere and think we have all this amazing stuff which we do but reality was a literature festival and that's what the Germans really want and it was interesting because I've talked to a few people who were there and the the display and they had their little cubicles where they had little um, events on and, and every half hour or whatever it was the the special effects, thunderclouds and the rain and the would would start and they'd have to pause while everyone in the little tent would have to pause and remain silent while it was overrun by thunderous rain and and, and all the chanting and this is very New Zealand, isn't it's it? It's very New Zealand. Yeah, it's, like, it's very much look <laughs> you know, forget about our literature, this is our entire country packed into Yeah, totally. Well, you know, I wasn't involved in the decision, so whoever did it, did it for their reason, and I'm not sure what impact it's had. I'm not, I haven't seen any follow-up to say that New Zealand's massively been advantaged by it all. listening to the NZSA Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we wanted to take this opportunity to let you know about the new online writer toolkit. From getting a new project started to negotiating a contract, the writer toolkit will take you through a year's worth of learning about craft and industry. Taught by experienced writing professionals, the writer toolkit will contain pre-recorded online content with writing exercises or assignments which you can work through at your own pace. Visit authors.org.nz to learn more. When Kyle considered becoming president of NZSA in 2013, she had lots of ideas and a desire to broaden the organisation's welcome to writers. However, as she tells Naomi Arnold, when she took up the position, it came with many pre-existing challenges that needed to be wrestled through first. In a way, uh, I thought that the NZSA wasn't as political as it could be, and understandably to a degree as well, because it is being funded and... Politics and funding in New Zealand is not necessarily good, um, comfortable bedfellows. <laughs> you don't want to upset... The, it's easy to upset the wrong person, and if you upset the wrong person, then you can face funding issues. And I thought that I could maybe bring some... an outside perspective, because I wasn't involved in the literary sector as such. 
I was involved in children's writing, which feels like it's a, a little island off the coast of the literary sector. So, so and and it just yeah it felt like, and I felt the organisation itself had become a bit. Yeah, it's it's it's. I don't know what I thought. I think I <laughs> I just stumbled in. I think I think I thought I could I could bring something to it, uh, and I'm just going to go for it and. I wasn't even, you know, I wasn't even sure I was going to get in there because originally it was normally it's um, hard to get people to to nominate, but then in the end, uh, Tony Simpson decided to run again as well. So it was a question of I wasn't even sure I was going to get there, and I was a, you know, I was a new person that wasn't really known. I was a children's writer, which was seen with a bit of um, caution by some people, some members. And I was known for being flippant, I think, because I am flippant, <laughs> very observant of these people to notice. <laughs> so, and so I can't hold it against them. But the, because you're seen, because you behave in a certain way and don't take yourself seriously, that people think you don't take the job seriously, and that I would just bring it, bring it into disrepute almost because I was wanting to enjoy myself and wanting people to enjoy the experience and wanting wanting people to come along to a meeting and enjoy it to a degree i wasn't wasn't there to do anything out of 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 tradition or respect for the past i respect the past i respect like with all my things i do i respect um, strongly respect the people who've come before me I couldn't be doing what I'm doing, writing, whether it's writing, whether it's being trans, you know, I totally, the people who did this hard work to get me, to get this world where it is today, they're the ones who deserve the respect. And like NZSA, the people who've done it and created it and built it up and it got the PLR through and all these achievements, they deserve utmost respect. But that doesn't mean I have to respect the way that that they go about it necessarily that it does can't be changed that you, can, you have to accept that this is set in stone anything so i i went in thinking i can hopefully change things for a, a different from modern fresher more creative open to more possibilities i wanted to sort of somehow open the door that things could happen people could come with an idea and nzsa would go we would go, wow, we've never thought about this. This is brilliant. Let's do it. What can we do? Rather, what can we do? What can we do to help in the situation with the given, given the context that we find ourselves with things seemingly nosediving? It's like, what could we do as an organisation to support writers? After a year in a, um, as president, I got invited to Australia to by the ASA um, to go to their conference and went to Sydney and they put me up for a couple of nights and 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 I mean they were in a completely different situation because they got a few legacies and they have owned a building and have money but in terms of uh, membership we've New Zealand's actually got a higher percentage of members uh, writers as members than, than than Australia has and we also in the New Zealand take on the pen role, which is unheard of elsewhere. There's two different organisations everywhere else. And 
and what they do uh, in Australia, we were doing more, and but on on a tighter budget, on the on the smell of an oily rag, and so I was thinking, you know, is there a way of trying to grow the organisation? And I thought the only way of growing the organisation was to have more members. And the only way to get more members was to make it more inclusive and welcoming, and to to lighten up and to that it wasn't an ivory tower because I even felt that when I first was started writing that it was sort of a, a castle to be breached and the only way to breach it was to be published and then I would be accepted and be a writer and we'd all hang out as writers and mutter about the, <laughs> the publishing world and it's not like that at all and the fact that it was it's so open to any writer of any level and which is what I believe in as well that basically if you write no matter what or how or when or how much or whatever genre, doesn't matter if you write anything, you're a writer. And if you're a writer, you sh- should be welcome. You should feel welcome. You shouldn't be seen as second-rate citizen. You shouldn't be seen as, you know, there's no hierarchy in my, in my world as a total socialist. It's like no organisation should have hierarchies. I mean, you do have to have an organisational hierarchy that things get, otherwise things don't, go, don't get done. But in terms of memberships and everyone should feel totally welcome and you come along, you're embraced, you're made to feel like you're a writer and you've got, you can, you can you know, gain something from the experience and people share. So in the four years you were there, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> What, what didn't happen? <laughs> what happened? First thing, I, I walked in, I hadn't been involved at all before then, except for six months as chair of Southland, so I didn't really know anyone, didn't really know, know how it worked. And but basically, I went into a, a time when there was conflict and everything had broken down. There was conflict between the CEO and the staff. There's conflict between the CEO and the board. Of the National Council at the time, there was conflict within the, the division within the National Council, and a lot of this had come about because of Frankfurt and how Society of Authors perceived Frankfurt as an opportunity. And some thought we should, Society of Authors should be there with a stand and do stuff, and another side said no, it's too expensive and it's we don't want to get involved in this. It's not our our deal to go and promote writers or any specific writers, you know. And so the person who asked me to sort of consider running, I only discovered later, really, that um, they thought I was pro-Frankfurt, having a stand at Frankfurt. And at the time, I probably was, but I went into it without any preconceived notions. I thought, I don't really know enough. And from the outside, it felt like, why wouldn't you go to Frankfurt? (laughs) What's... What's not to what's not to like about it? But then I went in, and they were already in a structural, um, consider, reconsidering the whole structure of the organisation because they brought in a, a guy who was willing to um, professional. I forget what they call these guys, who got, gets gets the board works with boards to reconsider and really think about what the real deeper purpose of the organisation is, and try to get to the core of what functions and and what what you really should be doing and what you want to do and what you shouldn't be doing and so I walked into that and had no idea and within no time it was like well 
I wasn't going to jump in and make a decision about Frankfurt going or not. Not not because of any other reason than just the financial situation, because it was NZSA is always on the smell of an oily rag and is always has very very seldom made a profit. So there's not much, not many reserves. It has reserves at certain points, but there's it's it's a very tight organisation. You couldn't squeeze out much more out of it than than they are already and they have been over most most of the course of its whole existence. It's been working way above its weight and punching above its weight. And so I was, when I saw the you know I'd never paid much attention to the finances of the organisation, but as well this is. This has to be financially viable to go to Frankfurt. So, I basically my view was okay. We need to just put things on, separate everyone, put everyone on in the corners, and let's try to come together and be adult about it and rational about it. And and that was the same with the the employees and the CEO and the and the CEO left soon after um, for various reasons and. So we left with, you know, an employee who was going to potentially take the society divorces to employment court, and, and we had we had some very strong divisions in the national council between various factions, and they had had no sense of unity. There were you know people working for the organisation, other people who seemed to be working for whatever. I'm not sure what their motivation was because it's just alien to me to go into an organisation and to be basically volunteers. I mean, National Council aren't paid to any degree that it's a job or it's a paid position. So I didn't understand what people were getting out of it. The first year was basically trying to unpick everything and quell the (laughs) dissent amongst all the various factions. And and things took a couple of years and then it was um then it was a process of thinking about how the organization might be restructured to basically to modernize it because you know the the constitution constitutions are, are weird things insofar as they're um set in stone or appear to be they like they're carved into <laughs> into rock by some godly hand and I've had a couple of experiences with it with the Environment Centre. When I was doing the Environment Centre, we were a charitable trust. And we went to the Community um, Law Centre and asked them for advice. And because I'd been, go- I'd been looking at online and stuff and looking at examples, and they were all this, you know, 25 pages of details. And, and it was just overwhelming. So the Community Law Centre guy said, keep it as flexible and as brief as possible the more flexibility you can have the more briefer it is the more flexibility you can have and the, the better it is because it evolves and the NZSA's constitution is actually quite prescriptive in terms of how things are done to have a you know have a have a prescriptive rationale for the existence and the the what you want to achieve with it that's fine because then you you believe in the organization or not but when you start saying how things need to be done to achieve this it becomes this burden and this big chain around the ball and chain around people's legs because you can't do anything without having this constitution dragging behind you. Mm. Were there any changes in funding arrangements? And um... I mean, the, the funding was um, 
it's just that I'm always struggling with funding. I think organisations should be allowed to just put together a proposal and get what they need, what, what actually works. And But the whole putting it together and you get the percentage of what you really need and Society of Authors with an extra... If someone would give them an extra $50,000 a year, it would be massive stuff happening, but it's not. It's always... It's becoming this, this cycle of self-fulfilling funding versus just maintaining it on the treadmill. Is you, have, you do all these manuscript assessments and mentorships and to, get, to get funding, really. And they do a good job, and it's all, but it's self, it doesn't do anything but maintain itself. And each year you have to apply for more funding to do more, more um, manuscript assessments. So all the other stuff, all the political stuff, all the development stuff, all the other stuff might happen is put on the back burner because just maintaining that process of mentorships and all the general stuff, you know, in, in my case, when I had the um, suddenly blow up the copyright licensing was suddenly changing their, intending on changing their funding and it was supposed to be, money went to writers and it was as simple as that. It, it, money belonged to writers. It should have been given to writers and it was given to writers and suddenly it was changed and that just blew up. And then it was on top of everything else. It becomes, there's just no energy left to adequately fight these things because you're relying on people to put in extra time when they're not being paid. So it just took up, took up a lot of time and energy just to fight something which was a needless fight, really. What were some of the other battles? Oh, no, it, it was just, that was, I... I by the time you've done it for three years, you start running out of steam after I found it's a, the first you go in. My first year was really trying to get things moving and spent a lot of time really analysing the organisation and what um, it wanted to achieve and how it might achieve it. And there's a lot of discussion on, but there's a lot of, you know, always one of the biggest battles was, was probably fighting rumours all the time. Like we had a discussion about the significance of pen in the organization and and during the discussion most people thought well most of the council thought well actually I'm not really heavily involved in that side of things it's not high on my personal list of of things to get excited about I, I think it's important it's it's doing a it's an invaluable job but as the Society of Authors, like most countries have pen as a different organisation. And so it was actually this, we didn't have, a, people felt they didn't have enough time and energy to put into pen as well. And that relied on a couple of volunteers who were really committed to pen. And that was good. good. And then next thing though, the rumour is that we're thinking about getting rid of pen and we're not going to do pen as well. And in the end, after you know, discussing it properly and going through the process, the the decision was made to actually strengthen the pen side of things, to because it was a way of achieving a, a broader sense of this NZSA in, in the wider literary community, because that's fundamentally what it's always done as well. Is that sort of what pen does? It it's about rights of authors and protecting rights and promoting the rights and authors, and it's it's an organisation where which stands up for writers. So by strengthening it, it was then strengthening the organisation as a whole. So, but the whole rumour about that we were going to get rid of it 
and all that sort of constantly having to fight disgruntled members writing disgruntled emails about what we were going to do. You, um, you've written a bit about the need for a children's laureate uh, in the past book. Can you tell us about that idea? Uh, well, children's laureate is just, we do have a poet laureate and we've got um, other laureates now given out by the Arts Foundation. We did a bunch of those. But Children's Laureate is just um, someone to promote issues around children, and not just literature. It's all about, you know, there's other issues. It's, it's a voice for uh, on the behalf of children, not, not, not in terms of health issues and stuff, but about um, culture and supporting them culturally. I'm not sure. It's... I mean, in Australia and places without it, um, each each laureate decides on his own focus. So it's all about stories or sharing stories and having children share their stories and promoting reading and literature. And but it's more than that. Somehow, it's, it's a personal it's a personal thing that every laureate has a personal take on what they could and should use the position for. It's quite political. It's about it's, a, it's a creating a voice which has um, resonance in society and can say things on behalf of children's writers, children in writing, children, children's reading, children in general. It's hard to say too much about it because it's until it's there, you don't want to sort of create, create a too concrete notion of it because it's flexible I'd like to see whoever whoever is there could should be able to control their own destiny with it with it really just need money really it needs to be a paid position it needs to be um, not just a honorary thing what, what are your thoughts on uh, the public lending right and how it's administered funded and what it's contributed to your writers income I mean the public lending right is a godsend really and I always think of it in terms of from a children's writing perspective, it's the only objective funding in New Zealand. Basically, you get money because you have X number of titles in the system, and which means that you you deserve X number of dollars for having your copyright, basically, your, your um, royalties lost. So potential royalties having been foregone for, for having your books in the system. And of course, some people don't necessarily agree with that, um, but it is. It's the only money I ever get. So <laughs> I don't. I don't get funding from Creative New Zealand. I have yet to get any funding for my writing from Creative New Zealand in twelve years, sixteen years of attempting. I haven't gotten a single cent. So public lending right is my income, and from my perspective, I'm Australian as well, which means I get Australian public lending right. Um, and I think it's a bit of a travesty that doesn't work both ways because if you're a New Zealander living in Australia, you don't get New Zealand copyright. You must, I mean, um, lending right, you must live in New Zealand. So, and I think that's not not fair. I think that as a New Zealand citizen, you deserve to be paid wherever you are. You don't, haven't given up your right to the loss of royalties because you happen to have realised it's a more profitable living overseas. Why should that be interfere with your rights? Um, how much of a percentage of your income has it made up? Oh, at the moment it's basically 70%. 
having the Australian one and the New Zealand one, which means it's not a lot of money, <laughs> but it's basically getting us by because I haven't been published really for five years. I haven't had a picture book published in eight years, I mean accepted in eight years. So I'm in a bit of a mid-career flatlining sort of experience. Yeah, what do you think happened there? You mentioned it a few times. What, what a few think? times, it sounds like I'm, <laughs> I'm moaning. I'm just stalking <laughs> like, your Facebook pages and things. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, you always have ups and downs as a writer or any, any artist thing. And I think partly it's my own fault in terms of I'm not following the market, I don't follow markets. And I think the market here has become quite introverted, maybe is the word. People might disagree with me, of course, but uh, it's easy from the outside. When you're not getting published, you can say all sorts of things. Uh, so, but I don't know, whatever's happened is, it's not what I'm doing. And what I'm doing is, and I, I don't, I feel like I'm on my own course, my own path, and wherever it takes me, it takes me. And I'm not willing to forego that. I've been writing for a long time now, 16 years full-time published, and I've written 60, got 60 titles published, and blah, blah. And I think I'm not willing to do just write something for the hell of it. And so I'm probably not writing as many picture books as I used to because I'm finding stories which I may have written a few years ago no longer don't feel that pressing. I don't feel like they're going to contribute to my career. It may get published, but it doesn't really do anything for me personally. I feel like I'm on a journey to find stories which somehow really make it worthwhile for me. That I feel like I'm after satisfaction and deep personal satisfaction. And I want to write stuff which means something to me and not just be published anymore. In the beginning it was like, write whatever gets published. And if that's a rhyming story about an elephant with big ears, uh, little ears, sorry, then yeah, do it. It's fine, it's a funny story, it's a laugh, kids will like it, it's all funny. But now it's, a, well actually, I don't, I've done that. There's only so many permutations of a story you can do. It's like writing, when I was a journalist, writing about the rugby league teams. There's only five teams and you think, after a while you think, sorry, I can't, can't write the same story again about the same two teams fighting at the same battles. So I'm just feeling like I'm maybe on a different trajectory somehow. I'm hoping that I will cross the market at some point. The market will circle around and I'll, I'll intersect it and we'll all be happy again. Peace will reign in my little kingdom. Today's episode was the final part of Naomi Arnold's oral history interview with Carl Mewburn in 2020. You can hear the first part of the discussion and past episodes of the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History podcast at the website authors.org.nz. Subscribe to the podcast on Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple or wherever you listen to make sure you catch every episode this season. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby-McLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu-Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season and also UNESCO and the Otago Community Trust for the funding to record new oral histories with authors based in Otago. Noturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. 
I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.